Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week is the last episode in our series on lost books, unpublished work and marginalised voices. And we are talking about the authors Pauline Hopkins and Dorothy West. Lauren, I will bet you a crisp British five pound note if you can guess whether I've heard of these authors before preparing for this week's episode. I think you should just give me that money because um, there's definitely no way that you've heard of them. No, I'm feeling smug about this. (laughs) (laughs) There is a fiver in the post on its way to you. Excellent. (laughs) So um, some of our listeners might be a little bit more familiar with Dorothy West. I'm thinking she is known as the last surviving author of the Harlem Renaissance, which you can hear a little bit more uh, about in our episode on Alice Dunbar Nelson, which was season three, episode 25. I think I really butcher the Harlem Renaissance (laughs) in that episode. So check that out for sure. Um, Dorothy is definitely the most contemporary author that we have ever covered on this show her second book was published in 1995. Which is what, because we were, we were alive then. Yes, I was definitely <laughs> alive so, then. so novel. Like, <laughs> we were watching, well, I was watching Pride and Prejudice for the first time in 95. Yeah, same. I think, probably, around then. Colin Firth was in that pond in 95. He really was. Um, the other author we will be discussing today is Pauline Hopkins. And like West, Hopkins was an African-American novelist, journalist, playwright, and historian that lived in Boston. I am getting flashbacks to last week's episode. Honestly, this is now a podcast about 19th century women writers who live in Boston and how they are all connected now. So I hope all of you New Englanders enjoy. to help us talk about these two authors, we will be joined by Professor Shireen Sherrod Johnson. But Hannah, do you think that we should give the listeners who aren't familiar with West and Hopkins just a little bio, just a little nutshell history before we dig in? Yeah, I think that would be smart. Yeah, I think so. For me too, as much mm-hmm. as anyone. Yeah, <laughs> well, even the playing field. So uh, Dorothy West was born in Boston, Massachusetts on the 2nd of June, 1907. She was an only child, but grew up surrounded by family. I think I read that her mum was one of 22 children. Oh my God. How I made that up. That's I'm sure I lot. read that. <laughs> yeah, like my grandma had 14 siblings. That's a lot. <laughs> A lot of childbirth. Uh, Her father, Isaac Christopher West, owned a fruit company and was one of the wealthiest black men in Boston. The family wasn't always wealthy, though, so they weren't like... Isaac wasn't born into money. He was actually born into slavery, freed at seven, and then built the empire from nothing. I think he, like, became... I'm trying to remember what the biography I read said. I think he um, he started working when he was 10. So mm-hmm. just like a really like tumultuous childhood. Um, and I think obviously in response to that, Dorothy West's child, 
uh, Dorothy West's upbringing was like very sheltered mm-hmm. and genteel and like middle class within right. like the community they were living in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like definitely like a sense that she was kept away from maybe what was going out in the world as much as possible. Um, so, and she was also really well educated. She actually had private tutors from the age of two. Oh, nice. Like, so sort of like young. Charlotte Fortin as well. Mm-hmm. Very similar. And then because of her father's position, just like moved around through like influential people. She was just surrounded mm-hmm. by like a lot of conversation, like people that really thought and were doing stuff and like really active. And so she began writing by the age of seven and her oh, first wow. short story, Promise and Fulfillment, was published in the Boston Globe when she was just 14. Oh, wow. And yeah. Uh, she went on prodigy. to study at Boston. She went to um, a really prestigious girls' school as well. I can't remember what it was called. And then she mm-hmm. went to Boston University. And then later, she studied at Columbia University School of Journalism. So in 1926, two really exciting things happened to West. So the first was that she tied for second place in a competition in Opportunity magazine for her short story, The Typewriter. And the second thing is either because she won the competition or just like totally unrelated to it (laughs) at all. So some sources say that because she won the competition, she won a prize of staying in New York like a trip to New York was the prize or I've also seen that she had to go to New York to collect the prize and I've also Mm -hmm. just seen it that she won the prize and then later went to New York so she went there and the thing that is interesting about it is that um she was 20 years old and she was like this is great I'm gonna stay and she did so in case you haven't figured it out she moved to New York at 20 and it's the middle of the Harlem Renaissance Mm-hmm. And she's just in it and she's there. She's young and she just joins in, you know? And then she goes on to say in an, in, in an interview given in our lifetime, 1995, yeah. crazy. she said, we didn't know it was the Harlem Renaissance because we were all young and all poor. We had no jobs to speak of and we had rent parties to raise rent money. And I just love that. Like, yeah. you don't know that you're doing anything. You don't know that you're part of like a giant artistic movement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then people are like, what was it like? Yeah. It's like we were having rent parties. We didn't know. So despite her early successes, despite living in this vibrant artistic community, she struggled to earn a living as a writer and just was always looking elsewhere for opportunities, which I think is great because then she just went off and did all of this really wild stuff. So Mm -hmm. did you know that in 1927, she was an extra in the original Porgy Porgy and Bess? Porgy. Porgy? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did you know that she uh, went to London with Porgy and Bess? I did not know that. That's really cool, actually. Do you know that she spent a year living in Russia? I had heard that. Yes, oh, okay. but that's pretty crazy. <laughs> so she spends this year in Russia. She had initially traveled over there to film. And I don't really get this right. So she traveled mm-hmm. to Russia to f- make a film about racism in America. Interesting. Yeah. And then while she's there, there's like all of this drama. The film gets cancelled. There's all of these accusations that she's like a communist. I think she went over there mm-hmm. with like 20 people. Okay. They're all just like, what is going on? I guess you're all spies. I mm-hmm. don't know. She proposed to Langston Hughes. Amazing. So he's like, no, 
I don't want to marry you. It's fine. Um, so yeah, all in all, not a great time that she had in Russia. So she leaves Russia after like having this shit year mm-hmm. because her dad died. My God. And then she went back to America and like the depression is happening. Jeez. Yeah. So it's like not, things aren't going great. She's got like $40 to her name. She's like, what am I going to do? I'm back in America. I've got $40. So she starts a magazine. All right. Called I like Challenge. It. It's a literary magazine. It was showcasing the works of African-American writers. And she published six issues of it before it folded in 1937. Mm. So not one to give up at all. She immediately launched a new magazine titled New Challenge. But I then like that it. folded as well. <laughs> after oh, no. just one issue. In 1940, she became the first black author to write regular short stories for the New York Daily News. She wrote two a month and did that for 20 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then, so she stayed in New York for 10 years. Couldn't find a lot about what she was doing in New York. Sounds mm-hmm. like whatever she could get her hands on, honestly. And then eventually she moved to Martha's Vineyard uh, where her family had this vacation home. And did you know you can go there? To her home? Yeah. Oh, is it a is it a literary home? I don't know if you can go inside, but you can walk past it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I love Martha's Vineyard, so I any excuse, honestly. So it was Living in Martha's Vineyard that she wrote Living is Easy, published in 1948. And something that I think was interesting about that is like she's obviously had all of this time like traveling like living in new york like going to russia struggling to make ends meet or like earn a living and it's almost like you don't want to say giving up but that's obviously what people will have perceived it as or maybe like Mm -hmm. her friends in new york like oh you're just going to go and live in your family's home in martha's vineyard like almost falling back on like that security Mm -hmm. and it really reminds me of jane austen moving to chawson because she moves there and then within the year she writes her first novel and it's Mm -hmm. published and it's like oh security time not worrying all of the time is like conducive to writing yeah really (laughs) surprise unfortunately the book wasn't a huge financial success she had planned on serializing it and this was all like ready to go. It was going to be in the ladies home journal. And then the magazine was like, oh no, we will probably lose subscription in the South if we publish your work. So it got canceled. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, so she got a job as a billing clerk for the Martha's Vineyard Gazette and then eventually began writing for the newspaper. So okay. she got a job not as a writer and then like eventually started writing for them. It was then like another 50 years before she wrote another book. Uh, It was called The Wedding, set in Martha's Vineyard, where she had spent the majority of her adult life at this point. And then just three years after the book was published, aged 91, she died in Boston. So moving it along to Pauline Hopkins... So Pauline was born in Portland, Maine in 1859, but then moved over to Boston uh, pretty early on. Um, Young Pauline was very academically driven and showed an early talent for writing, just like Dorothy West. While attending high school, she actually won an essay contest and the prize was $10 in gold. Like gold pieces? Like ingots? Yeah. That's pretty great. That is a, yeah. 
it's a good prize. And I did look up like how much that would be today. I think around $230, somewhere around there. Um, so sort of like Dorothy West, uh, Hopkins also had this, you know, sort of background in performing. At 16, um, she starts singing with this choir called the Progressive Musical Union. And then when she's 20, she writes a musical called Slaves Escape or The Underground Railroad. Her family were kind of like the Von Trapps. When she was 21, she performed as part of their singing group called the Hopkins Colored Troubadours. She also worked as a stenographer and public speaker, and you can see the influence of both of these jobs in Contending Forces, a romance illustrative of Negro life, North and South, which she published in 1900 when she was 41 years old. So we're going to be chatting about Contending Forces a little later on in the episode, but since it comes up in the interview, Hannah, do you want to give like a little summary of this very this giant book. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in the nuttiest nutshell, uh, Contending Forces opens in the midst of Great Britain abolishing the slave trade and follows the Montfort family as they leave Bermuda, which was a British colony, and move to America to try and safeguard their property, slaves, mm-hmm. and their fortune. Because yeah. um, Charles Montfort is basically like, how can I keep my money but seem like a good guy or like feel yeah. like a good guy. He's got this long, like long drawn out, like how can I free the slaves without losing any money? Yeah, I want both. Yeah, he wants to have his cake and eat it too. And the mm-hmm. book is basically like, you can't do that. <laughs> Sorry. So his decision to move to America begins this chain of events that end up interlocking the lives of his family and this American family, the Pollocks, just for generations. And the bulk of the story follows his great-grandchildren and just explores through the families just the lasting legacy uh, and impact of the slave trade in America and I think England as well, kind of off screen. Yeah, I think so. That's a good summary because it's like, it's such a this multi generational saga, and there's a lot. <laughs> so immediately following Contending Forces, um, Pauline also wrote three serialized novels, all written and published between 1901 and 1903. It's a lot of output. Really mm. busy lady. Um, you got Hagar's Daughter, a story of Southern caste prejudice. Winona, A Tale of Negro Life in the South and Southwest, and Of One Blood or The Hidden Self. The serialized novels were all published in the Colored American Magazine, a literary journal which Hopkins was an editor. She also sat on the board of directors, and uh, that magazine became the widest circulating African-American literary publication prior to the NAACP's magazine being launched. Um, It was eventually bought in secret by Booker T. Washington. And I do also want to note here that if you're interested in reading The Colored American, it's actually been digitized. And it's really cool, actually. And um, it's available at coloredamerican.org with some like scholarly commentary as well by some really cool people. So I highly, highly recommend Now, little appears to be known about the last 25 years of Hopkins' life 
We know that she spoke at two centenary events, the William Lloyd Garrison Centenary in 1905, and then the Charles Sumner Centenary in 1911. And we know that in 1905, she self-published a pamphlet entitled A Primer of Facts Pertaining to the Early Greatness of the African-American Race and the Possibility of of Restoration by Its Descendants. And that 11 years later, in 1916, she co-founded the New Era magazine, which just released two issues. In one of the biographies that we read while preparing this episode, it pointed out that the gaps in her biography like don't mean that she wasn't doing anything. Like she was clearly a very active woman. It's just that, you know, more research is needed, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this applies to so many of the authors that we cover on the show. Um, always worth remembering that life doesn't just stop between the bullet points in a biography. Now, when Hopkins was 71, There was a fire in her home, and she sadly died after sustaining burns in that fire. So, sad ending. It's really sad when we do, like, a really short summary of an Mm -hmm. author's life, because you always hit the certain point, and then you're like, and at this age, they died of this thing. (laughs) And, like, how do you... (laughs) deliver that i don't i'm not meaning so to laugh sad. i'm not no, laughing at her it's for like so sustaining sad. burns but like how do you yeah how, how do, do you, we deliver yeah. that to you listeners i know <laughs> spoiler they died they died we're joined now by dr shireen Sherard johnson who is going to tell us more about the careers of these two writers shireen is the sally mead hans bascom professor of english at the university of wisconsin madison where she teaches 19th and 20th century american and african-american literature cultural studies and feminist theory recent publications include a companion to the harlem renaissance which we both need to read lauren yeah, dorothy definitely. west's Dorothy West's Paradise, A Biography of Class and Colour, Insubordinate Islands in Coastal Chaos, Pauline Hopkins' Literary Land and Seascapes in Archipelagic American Studies. Yeah. That was a good attempt at that word. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And Vixen, a poetry collection. And her second poetry collection, Grimoire, was released in September from Autumn House Press. And so Lauren and Shireen, take it away. Ooh, and I should also add that Shireen is also the president of the Pauline Hopkins Society. So now let's really take it away. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, I'm like ashamed that I don't know hardly anything about Pauline Hopkins. It's... You're not alone. (laughs) You're not alone. I think the, you know, the canon for, you know, people who are well read around black women or African American women writers, once you get into the earlier part, the late 20, the late 19th, um, early 20th century writers, you know, they Mm -hmm. still, there's been a lot of efforts to recover their legacy, but Mm -hmm. um, there remains um, still a lot of uh, opaqueness around um, the writing and they still just don't have the same kind of familiarity that they should. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when I've taught 19th century Black women's writing, I always have to explain to the students, like, look, you need to put yourself in a different frame of mind as a readership. This is, you are not the reading audience, right? Right. (laughs) That Hopkins was writing for during the time. Um, We're talking about an audience that 
was recent that had you know recently become literate, right? Mm-hmm. Many of them have a history of having been enslaved. Even the ones in the free communities, the idea of literacy was very much a shared experience. Many of them would have been reading these as serials, like not just Continuing Forces, but other mm-hmm. Hopkins books as um, serials. So they would have been reading in a newspaper or something like the Colored American Magazine, which Hopkins edited. So the experience of reading would be different. Um, the way that they respond to things that we now think of as cliche or mm-hmm. obvious sensational cliffhangers <laughs> right. um, were things that, you know, audiences um, anticipated, expected, and had a, you know, they got pleasure from that um, experience as well. That said, there's also things, like ways in which Hopkins was actually pushing the envelope in ways that I think even um, her contemporaneous audiences um, would have found shocking. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of it is really interesting, right? So there'll be, yeah. there'll be things that are both expected and unexpected um, in the work. Contending forces is, I mean, we will get into it, but I just want to say, like, it is a roller coaster. Like, I was like, this is a saga. <laughs> we was, yeah. like, deep in it, especially those first 80 pages. I was like, where are we going? What is happening? Mm-hmm. Right. I think people are unexpected. It begins, you know, in Bermuda, right? Yeah. Um, I have an essay that I wrote a few years ago, especially about um, the ways in which Caribbean culture and, and why um, and islands, you know, in Hopkins work in both Continuing Forces and also this other book that she wrote, Winona. But I was really captivated. I remember initially reading this is that why would she start it here? You know, what what is what point is she making by setting um, this novel that you assume is going to be about like African-American life, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and not in the States, right? And then the movement um, that it takes um, from there to the Carolinas, up to Boston, then it's back in New Orleans. <laughs> yeah. So we'll take it back. Um, tell me, you know, how you first became aware of Pauline Hopkins and just what is it about her work that really resonates with you? I started reading her in graduate school. Um, I went to Cornell and I had a class with um, a professor who ultimately became one of, uh, became her biographer, Lois Brown, um, who has a biography of Pauline Hopkins. It's um, really the definitive biography. It's a very, it's long, it's um, uh, prize winning, it's a really renowned um, work. And she was working on that biography at the time that I was a student in her class. And that was really the first time that I was exposed to um, black female writers who weren't writing, um, who were writing in the 19th century or at the turn into the 20th century, but who weren't writing slave narratives, right? Who mm-hmm. were writing fiction. And that was what struck me about Hopkins is that, you know, she certainly, um, the aftermath of slavery and its continued effects are paramount in terms of her subject matter, but she was also trying to entertain Mm-hmm. There's this quote where she talks about all the fire and romance. She imagined an audience that um, she felt would really be engaged and connected to these characters and that she could use that, uh, that she could use fiction as a way of um, stirring um, political sentiment. So really that question of artistic activism, I think was really um, important from her, for her and the combination of both and I, in all of her books, I, in all of her writings, I really see that, um, that tension, you know, between mm-hmm. I'm trying to write a, sto- a compelling story with characters that live on the page, but I'm also trying to um, create and work towards um, an environment that is more just, that is more equal, and that primarily is safe. Right. I think um, continuing forces is very much about 
what she identifies as the primary threats to, to Black life, which is um, sexual violence and then and lynching. And where do you recommend like a new reader start with Hopkins? That's a good question. I mean, I do think so. I'm, and I personally do believe Contending Forces is her best novel, like mm-hmm. that it's her most realized um, work. Um, that said, um, one place to start for people who haven't read Hopkins before is this short story she has uh, called Talma Gordon. Um, it can be found um, online, like many of her works. And um, Talma Gordon is um, really the first um, evidence of uh, African-American detective story. Um, oh, and it's cool. A- like a murder mystery, it's got passing, it's got um, you know the same kind of adventure narrative she likes to mm-hmm. work into several of her texts, but it's short, so it's a it's a mystery mystery story. I won't um, fully, I don't want to give away sure, yeah. <laughs> um, all of it, but that's a good place to start. Um, another work from Hopkins is a book that's called Of One Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a serial novel, so you can find it um, through the Schomburg, the digital Schomburg series mm-hmm. as uh, you can read it in, in one sitting. You know, you don't have to do the, the installments because it's been you know, collected together. Although it does have some of that, again, the cliffhangers um, between chapters. Um, but that work is so interesting because it's almost like a version of Edgar Allan Poe um, meets Indiana Jones meets Black Panther. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. And it, um, yes, the characters end up like going back to this like city, um, that's been hidden in, in, um, Moreau and which is ancient, um, Ethiopia. And when you read it, reading it now, it almost sounds a lot like, oh, is this the, um, is this Black Panther or is this something else? Yes, like Afrofuturism aspect to it. Definitely. It's definitely Afrofuturistic at a time, you know, a hundred years before we even use that term. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's the other really interesting thing about Hopkins is her experimentation with different genres of writing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's writing, you know, what you would, you know, love stories. She's writing detective stories. She's writing um, histories where revisionist histories, where she's retelling um, certain events from the civil war in her own way. Um, But she's also working with speculative science fiction, um, Pan-Africanist occult elements. Um, so she was, I, I feel like for her, she was just willing to try her hand at any form. That's really interesting. I'm kind of wondering too, um, do you think that in a way like works against her like legacy wise where like, you know, people tend to sometimes look down on authors who are having fun with the writing who are, you know, changing it up? That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, you um, hinted in one of your questions around some of the disagreement with regards to her and like Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. And I mean, during this time, there was a sense of Black writing um, presenting a cohesive, coherent front towards uplift, right? And there maybe were certain topics um, that couldn't be or shouldn't be addressed. And I think her willingness to do that um, certainly made her or put her on the more radical side of things mm-hmm. um, as a writer. Um, and I, you know, I, I guess, yeah, for me, what, what is really compelling about her legacy is that level of experimentation and challenging um, genres, often conflating or putting them together in the same, the same vein. Um, but I can see how that certainly does complicate um, 
how readers might experience her work and sometimes and might even be confused right, right <laughs> by right. the amount of different plots and subplots that she will pull into her work mm-hmm. um, she was also um she also often recycled um, speeches or elements from other published works in her own writing as well, which was a tendency that she had, um, such that um, there have been accus- accusations from different quarters. Well, is this plagiarism? Is this um, repurposing? How do we describe um, that kind of writing style um, during, you know, at the time that, during the time? What do you think of that? Is it sort of like maybe reframing what other writers are doing and sort of, yeah, giving it her own lens or? Yeah, I mean, that's really how I see it. And and others have described it. I I see it as a almost like a textual um, recycling Mm -hmm. um, and that it's part of her her experimentation. And I also see her as really being engaged with these other writers so that even though you might see similarities, it doesn't appear exactly the same, right? Mm-hmm. She makes changes. Um, you might even describe it as sometimes blackening text mm-hmm. <laughs> in sure. a certain way. Um, and there's, she isn't the only author who did this. If you look back into the 19th century, um, important um, writers like William Wells Brown, who um, wrote the novel Clotel, um, also was someone who has a tendency to not only recycle other works within his text, but also, you know, revise his own text over and over again, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So it wasn't as if she was, um, that was an unusual strategy Mm -hmm. um, during the period. And so I think what I like is thinking about, you know, well, what does it mean to um, rewrite um, a adventure or a pioneer story about um, Native and white um, settlers, you know, as she does in Winona, um, using or drawing on previously published works, but then retelling it as a story of enslavement or fugitivity, right? That's Mm -hmm. that's part of the project that she has in those texts. So, like I said, I have just finished Contending Forces, and -hmm. I've been thinking about that Gwendolyn Brooks afterward a lot. Yeah, so here. Okay, yeah. so <laughs> when you mentioned that, I thought, oh, what version does she have? She must sure. have that 1978 version. Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> um, so the Gwendolyn Brooks afterward, I mean, there, there's been, you know, I, I think that, so in 1978, we hadn't had the whole explosion of Black women's, um, Black feminist uh, scholarship and writing that would actually recover um, Hopkins mm-hmm. in some ways. So I think um, some of that confusion that even maybe your readers might be explaining about how to, you know, how do we read this, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was really, I think, the scholarship of people like Hazel Carby, um, who um, helped us. She had a book called Reconstructing Womanhood that I still think is an excellent, um, very readable. It's an academic book, mm-hmm. but it's a very readable academic book. And it talks about um, 19th century and even earlier legacies of Black women writers and just what they were up against in terms of speaking uh, or having a voice at a time when most people just assumed that they had nothing to say at all. Mm-hmm. Um and the ways in which they had to balance mastery of just the English language and the idioms of what literature looked like, but also protecting themselves as women, right? There were Mm -hmm. certain subjects they couldn't write about. Um, It's not so much like, I think, you know, Brooke's sense that, you know, Hopkins was afraid of somehow offending white readers. You know, she 
she wasn't. Um, and in fact, some there in the archive, you can have points where she actually says, you know, this isn't for you. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> she actually says that explicitly. But I do think she was thinking strategically about how to make certain points about, especially about how racial identity is constructed. Mm-hmm. I think there are times when she's actually speaking satirically within sure. the text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that um, Brooks is always catching the, the kind of double speak that is happening, mm-hmm. um, at least in the afterward. Um, that, and so some of the comments that she makes about, um, you know, the idea of her being like a brainwashed, you know, in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, assuming is that those are the kinds of. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's funny. I think the thing that we talk about a lot on the show, too, are people that are sort of confusing narrator with author voice. Mm-hmm. This is the author's thoughts. This, this is what the author is saying to you and not a character or a narrator. You know, mm-hmm. that is something that I think we're constantly trying to break down and like everything that we're reading, really. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that my students will sometimes pick up on, and I usually don't teach that version with the Brooks afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I usually teach the Schomburg version, which has a different introduction. Um, but a lot of them will comment on, you know, wanting to, especially um, students of color, they want to see, you know, heroines, you know, that look like them. And they're asking the questions, well, all of these heroines, why do they all seem indistinguishable from white women, right? In terms mm-hmm. of the descriptions, right? Um, even though they're not. And I think that it's, again, this is where sometimes we take our 21st century understandings of what representation looks like, right. and we're putting it on how um, Hopkins might have seen this. And that's not to say that Hopkins would have been concerned with represent the issues of representation that we find important. And there were certainly writers during the time, Frances Harper, who's another one of Hopkins' contemporaries, she is certainly cognizant of that and is important for her to have heroines that are dark skinned mm-hmm. um, and that can also represent the race well. So it's not as if that was unheard of. At the same time, I think Hopkins has um, more complicated investments there in terms of what mm-hmm. she's doing and how she's trying to destabilize certain ideas about race. But mm-hmm. to a 21st century audience, they can come away feeling like maybe they're not being represented, you know, as much as they would like. And I think it's a it's an interesting book to read in, in the light of some of the, um, the attention around um, that art that New York Times article. The um, I, gosh, I forget the author's name, but it's the an article where the writer talks about my body is a monument yeah a monument Mm -hmm. to rape right I mean in many ways that is um Sappho is that figure right within Mm -hmm. the text right that written on her body is this heritage of abuse and yet that isn't true for all of the figures that are in that book right right not the only story that's there it is a story um Mm -hmm. it is one that is part of that history but it isn't the only the only voice right So another person who had a lot to say about Pauline Hopkins, Booker T. Washington, Mm -hmm. these guys have a history. Can you tell us a little bit about their relationship? Well, the the kerfuffle around Booker T. (laughs) and um, (laughs) Hopkins really comes down to the who's going to have control of the editorship of the Colored American magazine. Mm -hmm. And... um, if you look at the pages of the Colored American, um, when Hopkins, the time where Hopkins is serving as editor, 
she's publishing in it a lot, right? Not just mm -hmm. under her own name, but under her pen name, Sarah Allen, which is her mother's name. So we know she, she mm -hmm. had potentially more than one pen name. And so sometimes in an issue, you might have three or four articles that are all by Hopkins, <laughs> um, <laughs> but with different names. Um, and she has, you know, very particular interest in terms of what she wants to highlight. I'm really interested in doing, um, um, having a global perspective. So she's doing histories and biographies on like Toussaint Louverture and writing about Haiti and the Caribbean. Um, so she really has this global perspective and it really is a politically um, um, radical one. And I think um, it was somewhat at odds with um, what is often perceived as Booker T. Washington's more accommodationist perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and a, a more caution, um, he had more caution. And I think the idea that she was a woman um, right. handing these things and not, and she was not willing to temper her writing. Um, and so as a result, I mean, it's very unfortunate um, that the result uh, was that she over time lost control of um, the colored American. And in many ways, when she's removed um, from the magazine, her, her writing, um, she, she just doesn't continue to write the way that mm -hmm. she had in the previous uh, period. Does it feel like that maybe like squashed her desire to write that really kind of? I do think, yeah. So I guess my, my sense, you were talking about her legacy. I think that people mm -hmm. understand and especially what they understand about Booker T, it's not surprising that they had this particular kind of discord. Sure. Um, so I, I think people certainly understand that and understand where she fits within that. But it did certainly affect um, her her ability to write and to have an audience, right? Because the colored American provided, you know, it's it, the subscriptions went into people's homes. Often, the ways in which the books were, you know, Contending Forces. Like if you had a subscription of a uh, colored American, you might get a copy of Contending Forces, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a way that she was able to disseminate her writing as well. And I think without that forum, um, she was certainly discouraged. And that's, mm -hmm. again, something that you saw with a lot of Black women writers from that period, that they would become, um, something would happen and they would stop mm -hmm. writing. <laughs> that happened yeah. again and again. I mean, with even the ones that are, who are more well-known, like Zora Neale Hurston um, or Nella Larson. So now I'm really, really happy that I found the Hopkins Society. And that's that's how I came to her work, really, as I found you guys online. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me how the society was formed and just like what sort of programming you guys put on and just how people can get involved? Right. So the um, the way to get involved really is to go to the website, which is PaulineHopkinsSociety.org. Um, and on that website, you can find um, links to online uh, works by Hopkins, both her fiction as well as her nonfiction. Um, you can find bibliographies, um, critical text for people who want to know more about Hopkins' life and how she's viewed within um, critical or in, in academic circles. The um, society was founded um, really to support and promote her legacy. We are an author society and we are part of the umbrella group for many author societies is the American Literature Association. So under that association, you have things like the Toni Morrison Society, um, which is huge and actually has quite a, a large membership. Um, Charles Chestnut, you have um, several 
authors who have a societies dedicated to their work, some who are older and some more contemporary, like there's a John Edgar Weidman Society um, that's part of that umbrella. And so um, scholars came together in um, 2009 um, to, um, to found a society that would be dedicated to Hopkins' work. Um, Hopkins wrote as a teenager and had won an essay contest. And so one of the things the society does is still run an essay contest, um, primarily for high school students in the Boston area. Um, we also put on panels at the annual American Literature Association conference. So scholars um, and independent researchers can participate as well to um, submit proposals to our call for papers. And so then they're able to present their work. Um, and then anyone can attend you know, these conferences as well. Um, for last year was our um, 10 year anniversary. And so we actually put on a staging of a really early Hopkins work, a play called Peculiar Sam. So, oh, cool. So it was really cool. Like this, you know, here's something that was written over a hundred years ago, and here we are um, putting on a performance of it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that was really great to see her work come to life. Um, she has this background in theater and performance that uh, predates her writing. So that's also something that we try and um, draw awareness to within the Hopkins Society. Um, something else that um, if members have access to is the listserv where people who are interested are sharing um, um, new work on Hopkins. Um, that's also, um, there's also a newsletter that uh, you get if you're a member that um, keeps you apprised of um, what you know, things that are going on. And there are lots of different levels of membership from a $15 one year membership to um, institutional membership or a lifetime membership. So now when I went to your website, I got really excited to see that you had written this book on Dorothy West because I was like, oh no, I want to talk about Pauline Hopkins, but, <laughs> but also Dorothy West. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always there, you know, they're both Boston writers. Um, mm -hmm. Hopkins is born in Maine, but she grows up in Boston. Um, Dorothy West is a, you know, Bostonian through and through. Um, you know, they, I want to say they, you know, they kind of intersected in the sense that certainly West would have known about the legacy of Pauline Hopkins and the literary mm -hmm. circles that she was a part of. And those really would have influenced, I think, um, the West as a young writer thinking that this is something that I can do, right? There's a history mm -hmm. um, in, in the early 20th century, there's a history of, of writers. And so um, she is really encouraged um, through um, literary circles and writing groups to pursue a writing career uh, very early on. I think that's part of the legacy that Hopkins built in the Boston area, along with William Monroe Trotter at The Guardian mm -hmm. and others who were, um, you know, writing and, and, and working during that time. Any suggestions for our listeners if they're going to, where they, where they should start with Dorothy West Dorothy. if they haven't? Yeah. Well, yeah. I would certainly suggest my biography. Of Dorothy yes, West. of course. Um, but in terms of fiction, so she has two novels. She has lots of, she's actually a great short story writer. So some of her short mm -hmm. stories are well anthologized. I would say her most anthologized and probably most popular short story is a short story called The Typewriter. Um, but in terms of her novels, I would say that like Contending Forces is Hopkins' masterpiece or masterpiece. I would say that Dorothy West is certainly the living is easy. And that's a novel that has um, an amazing heroine. You would almost call her an anti-heroine because she's just one of those um, women who's um, 
uh, you know, she's a, a mother, but she's one of those, like, she's almost kind of like, I hate to use the term like tiger mom, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> anachronistically. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she is fighting, you know, to um, make a better world for herself and for her daughter, but she has um, real issues with class and color. Um, mm-hmm. It is very much about North-South divides around um histories, like the different kinds of histories uh, between migrations. So the different histories that the more recent um, Southern migrants have in Northern cities versus the older black populations that have been there going back to Hopkins time. So you can see that uh, being played out. Um, it also is, it has a satirical element to it, much, much stronger than I think in Hopkins. It really is a yeah. comedy of manners, um, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a great book. I, I really like it. it it's, it's um, a, a very insightful um, portrait of life in, um, in turn of the century, you know, Boston, but very much focused in a complex um, female heroine. So I would definitely recommend Living is Easy. Uh, it's published, uh, still published by the Feminist Press. Um, the other novel that um, people enjoy from West is The Wedding. Um, this is this has been made into a Oprah um, miniseries. Um, oh, that's right, starring Halle Berry. So <laughs> sometimes people don't know who Dorothy West is, and then I say, "Well, did you see that miniseries with Halle Berry on Martha's Vineyard?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then that rings a bell. Um, so the wedding um, is her second novel. I, again, I. I really do prefer The Living is Easy. Um, Mm -hmm. The Wedding um, recapitulates some of the themes that West is known for around interracial classism, class divisions, um, colorism, you know, all of that stuff is certainly at play. Um, But the setting for The Wedding is in the novel um, is is on Martha's Vineyard. And the novel is actually quite different from the Oprah miniseries. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) enough that, you know, really, there, there's not there. I would say that the Oprah miniseries is more inspired by the wedding than a faithful um, interpretation of it. Right. She had like a pretty big gap between those novels, right? What was what was she up to? Yeah, about fifty years, um, and that's yeah. what I explore. Um, in, oh, perfect. And Dorothy West Paradises. Yeah, what was she doing? Um, so, you know, Dorothy West comes late to the Harlem Renaissance. She's young. She's a teenager. She shows up in Harlem with her cousin, Helene Johnson, who is a renowned poet. Um, after she wins a contest um, and from a literary magazine and they show up there, they stay in Zora Neale Hurston's apartment, <laughs> but they get oh, there wow. kind of, again, late, the Harlem Renaissance is, is just beginning to wane. And so they're teenagers coming in sort of at the end of the movement. Um, that said, um, I mean, she, um, Dorothy West, in some ways, I wonder, like maybe Pauline Hopkins, um, becomes the editor of a magazine, um, a literary magazine um, known as The Challenge. Um, so she publishes um, writers as well. So she also has that editorial um, role. Um, unfortunately, also like Hopkins, her editorial role is short-lived. Um, mm-hmm. She is, uh, um, I wouldn't say forced out, but really um, she gets into a, it's almost like history repeating itself, right? There's a conflict between her and Richard Wright, who comes out of Chicago and becomes um, one of the co-editors of The New Challenge, um, which is responding to um, the writers coming out of the Chicago Renaissance who see some of the Harlem Renaissance writers as being not radical enough. 
right? So mm -hmm. there's this tension between um, that's both geographic, Harlem versus Chicago, but also just this newer, um, a, a newer group that doesn't want to be so beholden to what they saw as the patronage of the Harlem Renaissance. They felt like there was a sense that some of those writers were still accommodating white taste in ways that mm -hmm. this newer group um, doesn't want to um, cater to. Now, it's much more complex than all of that, but in the end, sure. the um, West actually decides, well, rather than let her journal be taken over, she just assume end it. And so that's it for the new challenge. Um, West, as the Harlem Renaissance comes to a close, um, becomes somewhat reclusive. She goes back to she goes back to Martha's Vineyard, where she summered as a child, and um, for a while she's just outside of the scene. People forget what happened to her. But it turns out. Um, some of the research that I did in writing the biography is that she became a columnist for um, the Martha's Vineyard Gazette, writing a column okay. um, uh, that goes on for several decades. And so mm -hmm. in fact, her writing goes from being, you know, she goes from being a, a fiction writer who's writing short stories and a novel to um, a columnist and gathered together, it's actually quite, um, an impressive uh, collection of writing, but it's very much that kind of society um, column and it's a little gossipy, but it has a political edge because West always did have a political edge. She uh, traveled to Russia um, as part of a group of uh, delegates who went to visit there um, right after the Bolshevik Rev uh, revolution. So she was, um, when a scholar sometimes described her as being pink, you know, so not, <laughs> not hardcore, it was certainly not like a card carrying communist, but certainly with um, socialist proclivities. Um, mm -hmm. And I think she does bring within her books, especially in The Living is Easy, you do see a critique of capitalism there, and especially um, how um, certain aspects of capitalism when they are taken up by the black bourgeoisie can be corrosive. Um, that is a theme that appears in several of her short stories, um, her fiction, and also in her columns. Um, and it's so the wedding, um, to make a long story short, it's actually not until um, a friendship that she develops with um, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who is an editor, um, mm -hmm. convinces her to, you know, maybe you should publish that novel you've been working on all of those years. Right. And so that's really um, the the provocation for the wedding um, getting published so many years later. I think she felt as if she didn't have um, the audience, especially the black power audiences of the 60s and 70s um, mm -hmm. would have seen her or did, were not gonna be interested in a story about upper class African-Americans on the vineyard. I think she felt there was, mm -hmm. um, she hoped there was an audience for it, but you can actually look through some of the correspondence that she had with editors. And it is pretty clear that that wasn't the kind of story they were looking for from black writers. Mm -hmm. They really valued a particular kind of story, which was much more in the vein of um, the realism of Wright and, um, and, and Ellison. That's all fascinating. I feel like I would love a dual biography of these two <laughs> writers as well. Yeah, there's a, there is a book by um, Cynthia Davis and Werner Mitchell that is about Dorothy West and her circle that tries to mm -hmm. do, you know, put into perspective um, those, the, the conversations that were happening. Um, and so um, they do have a chapter on Hopkins and, and make some of those links. Uh, oh, that's cool. These women. Yeah, there's this sense that 
um, yeah, people were, you know, they were engaging, they were exchanging work, they were supportive, you know, of each other, even, even if they weren't always um, generationally in the same sphere. If you're interested in Hopkins, going to the Society website, again, I'll restate that, the PaulineHopkinsSociety.org. Um, we had a panel that was going to happen at our conference in San Diego. That panel has been postponed, so we will be running a panel. And, you know, hopefully um, when the conference um, happens, um, it's going back to Boston in 2021. Um, so really the website is great for, to find um, all things um, Hopkins. And there will be, I think, some new additions in the work coming out of uh, some of her other texts um, in addition oh, to cool. attending courses. Um, she has a Hagar's Daughter, um, which will be coming out from Broadview editions in the coming years. So there'll be some newer editions that collate some of the context that I think will be really helpful uh, for readers. Um, in terms of my work on Hopkins, um, if you go to um, um, if you go to the University of Wisconsin English Department website and look under my name, Shereen Sherrard Johnson, there'll be links to some of the work that I've done on Hopkins. Um, I'm also a poet <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, there's, I, I have a, actually a new poetry book coming out in September um, called Grimoire. So some of, awesome. some of the things to look for. And we are back. And I really, 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 need a play or a movie about a 20-year-old Dorothy West moving to New York with her cousin, who's the poet, Helene Johnson, by the way, um, and then them living with the legendary Zora Neale Hurston. Like, where is my sexy Harlem Renaissance miniseries with cameos from, you know, Langston Hughes and just all yeah. these amazing authors who all knew each other and were having love affairs. And rent parties. Yeah, this movie or miniseries needs to happen. I think it needs a, a, limit, a Netflix original limited series. Mm-hmm. So I do want to say that I was really glad in the interview when you brought up the uh, narrative voice versus the author's mm -hmm. voice in Hopkins' work. Because um, something that I really enjoyed about Contending Forces was that there was this like broad range of like lived experiences and personal histories and political mindsets and like morals of all of the characters. And I think there's no way that you can read Contending Forces and come away from it just with the mindset that like the black experience is a monolith. Yeah. And, you know, I think if you're, by the time you're picking up contending forces, you probably don't have that mindset. But for me, it was just like eye-opening because, and I was telling some friends about it after reading it, just like how often do I read like a piece of classic literature, which is just, it feels like it wasn't written for me in any way. Mm -hmm. Or like I just wasn't in mind as the audience. Yeah. And so it felt like, unlike anything I'd ever seen. I just like loved reading it. And so. I think too, I like what you said about, you know, um, you know, black people are not a monolith because I think what happens with most pieces, like if there is representation in it, then you have one character mm -hmm. <laughs> and that character then has to be a voice of, you know, they, they have to represent all black people and they have to represent progress. Mm -hmm. And in this book, you have so many different 
people of, you know, different complexions, different races, like, and just so many different mindsets, you're allowed, you know, to have different points of view. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that something that Hopkins does, which I think is something that um, Austin does, and a lot of the writers we talk about on the show is that she actually, uh, she really allows her characters the gray area, where Mm -hmm. you have like, the cad who has a past and like you're given insight into like maybe why they are the way they are or you you know like like people are prideful people react people have like fickle hearts you know like all of this stuff it's not like yeah I think what you said just then uh then like no one is being held to a standard because they are a representation of anything but like that character like an individual like everyone feels like an individual yeah, they're allowed to be human. They're allowed to make mistakes. It's just something you don't see even in modern literature. There was a book the other day that I read. Um, and I appreciated the diversity of characters in the book. But it felt like everyone that came from a marginalized community with that book was just like they had to be perfect. Mm-hmm. So they didn't just feel they didn't feel like real people at all. It was like, oh, I think she's she's too nervous to actually write them as people. They have to be sort of these perfect representations. And it's just, it was, it didn't make a great read for me. Yeah, and it's not, it's not that it's always like an easy read. There's a lot in Contending Forces um, that is a struggle. Oh, yeah. uh, one of the great powers with Hopkins' work is that she's a very visual writer. And I know, I feel like we throw this around all of the time, but I think she would be writing for film. There was this oh, bit. yes she describes a character like digging their shoe into the gravel and then like the specific look they throw at someone. And I was just Mm -hmm. like, oh, I can see it. And the unfortunate thing is because you can see everything, uh, it also means that the really graphic descriptions of lynchings are, you know, and like a lot of the really awful stuff that she also doesn't shy away from. And it's a better book for it. It has to be there. It has to be in the she, book. She wants you to be affected mm-hmm. by it too, as well. Yeah, and it is affecting. Um, and then also there are definitely moments where um, I think characters would express an opinion. And I did find myself grappling just with like, does this character mean this? Did Hopkins mm-hmm. agree with this? Um, is this satire? Am I blocked from really understanding it because I'm a white woman reading it in 2020? Like what? Like, what's the nuance? Like, what am I missing? Or, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that it was something that Shireen said in the interview is that you do have to distance yourself from it when you're reading it. And I just, I was really aware of that distance also. Mm -hmm. It's been a minute since I've read some Frances Harper, but I do think um, that like comparatively her fiction is more didactic and it's like this direct extension of her activism. So you can see those points of view that you're talking about, like just more clearly and mm-hmm. those characters are more clear cut. Um, whereas Pauline Hopkins is like just much more of an entertainer yeah. and she has more flair and she's playing with these sort of gray areas as well. And um, it's interesting because like when I was reading it, I was like, God, I'm just I was so surprised by how readable mm-hmm. it is as well. And just kind of like how soapy it is. Um, well, I remember you saying to me, because I was, for whatever, I was like anxious to start reading it. I think I was just anxious just 
because it was so big it's like a big mm-hmm. book um and you were like no it's really soapy and then like the first chapter i was like this isn't soapy this is really this is really hard yeah. going and violent <laughs> and then afterwards i was like oh it's really soapy yeah yeah get through that yeah, yeah get the first 80 pages is a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of you know just information she's throwing down there but it's in but it's readable and it like it's a page turner yeah is the thing and um i totally agree with you like i feel like if she was living today she would absolutely be writing tv dramas and i am thinking of stuff like big little lies little fires everywhere the undoing like all of these shows have these very serious messages and themes revolving around like spousal abuse rape racism and it's sort of wrapped in these like it's just in this like satirical soapy bubble and all of the characters too are like are not pristine Mm -hmm. right they're all they're very complicated and flawed and we've got a lot of cliffhangers like just that's where she that's where she'd be she'd be on hbo max probably yeah absolutely so after finishing the book i was like trying to work out i wanted to do one of those like oh if you love this and you'll love Mm -hmm. this other book kind of a thing because i really want everyone to read it because it's it's not like the easiest book to get a hold of, right? It's like right. from an obscure press. I don't think you're going to like walk into like a bookshop and just see it on the shelf. I feel like you have to like right. know you want it and go and specifically order it. You're not going to mm-hmm. like wander in somewhere and pick it up. I really want people to like go away after this episode and read it. So I think that's why neither of us are like trying to talk too much about the plot because it really mm-hmm. is worth a read. Um, And the author that I think if you love this author then you'll love Hopkins is Elizabeth Gaskell yeah the synopsis also says that um Hopkins uses the conventions of sentimental romance as she seeks to encourage social change and that just that sounds like Gaskell right yeah yeah absolutely I was trying to remember when I said this and I think it was when we spoke at the Australian Austin conference the other week Mm -hmm. and just about how we know that Jane Austen was inspired by Frances Burney, at least to, you know, rename First Impressions Pride and Prejudice, and that Gaskell was inspired by Austen and kind of lift some of those, like, story beats for North Mm -hmm. and South, and then just wondering, like, who the baton was passed to, because for us, at least, the trail kind of goes dead at Gaskell. And then for me, Hopkins may have never read Gaskell, like, I can't find any evidence of that anywhere. But I do want to claim contending forces as, like, the spiritual heir of North and South. So in my brain, it's going to go Bernie, Austin, Gaskell, Hopkins. And Shireen was even saying in the interview how Hopkins' allusions to and uses of other texts is like a blackening of the works of white authors. Mm-hmm. And so definitely take, like, my little North and South bit with a pinch of salt I do think Gaskell fans will like North and uh, North and South contending. I do think <laughs> Gaskell fans will like contending forces. Um, yeah, I wish I could have found like some information about it, but I just I couldn't. I definitely get the Gaskell vibe, and I also went on my own hunt looking for it mm-hmm. as well. When I saw that you had written that in the notes, I'm like, oh, I wonder. So, um, Also, did is... you find as well that someone called Hopkins was like a biographer of Elizabeth Gaskell? Yes, I so did. So the name yeah. Hopkins just comes up on every search and you're like, yes. I found it, I found it. And then it isn't. 
It's not. Yeah. It's A.B. Yeah. Hopkins. I definitely found that. I did find some other evidence that might be like Tin Hat-esque. Ooh. So, well, okay. So we'll see what you think of this. So there is a really interesting book by Daniel Hack called Reaping Something New, African-American Transformations of Victorian Literature. And there is an entire chapter on Hopkins and her literary influences and the Mm. intertextual references that she is making to remember Ralph Waldo Emerson and Nathaniel Hawthorne, who we discussed last week. So those guys are big with her. Um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Shakespeare, Tennyson, Margaret Oliphant and George Eliot. Oh, and also oh, George Eliot. Yeah, and also William Cooper. She um sidebar, she does reference the task, which is what Austin cites in Mansfield Park yeah. as well. Um but double sidebar and here's where it gets like a little loopy. Um Hopkins was a big fan of a Scottish writer named Margaret Oliphant and Margaret has some big Gaskell energy. So I think that, you know, that's the energy I'm picking up on. I think that's possible. But also Tennyson is a huge influence on both um, Gaskell and Hopkins. And both of them like cite him and quote him frequently in their work. So um, so that could be it as well. That I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like I would not be surprised, though, if Hopkins had read Gaskell. Like I really think that that's. That's very, very possible. It's just like she just doesn't. It was just like vibing the whole time, Mm -hmm. especially like I think there were like the plots are not the same. Like I don't want anyone to pick this book up and be like Hannah said this was like North and South. Like Mm -hmm. there's no clogs getting thrown at anyone. Well, they're both doing the same thing, using Mm -hmm. that romance as a vehicle um, to talk about like political change. And then also they're both like a bit romantic and a bit gossipy mm-hmm. and also playing in that gray area. So I think it absolutely makes sense. I think it's really interesting to see the chain of influence and just like how story mm-hmm. morphs through time. Like who's reading who, who's borrowing, repurposing, quoting, stealing from, <laughs> you know, from who. This is this is like how we write and this is how we learn to write, honestly. Yeah. Um, And we did touch on this a bit in the interview, but Hopkins like blackening of other texts. um, I think this is another reason why she'd be a great TV writer today. Like just more evidence that this is the space that she'd be playing in. Um, Because right now where we're at, we're all about adaptations or like using a classic text as the influence for a TV show. Mm -hmm. So so there's so many examples of this, like um, Gossip Girl was modeled after The Age of Innocence, Revenge after The Count of Monte Cristo. But let's um, just for a minute talk about Shakespeare's King Lear, which is kind of hot right now, because it is also the foundation for succession and empire. Now, one show is about a white family and their media empire, and the other is about, well, you know, a black family and their music empire. <laughs> but all of the universal truths that are found in King Lear transcend race and they fit like they fit right into both worlds, like showing us that just, you know, we're more alike than we are different. And I mm-hmm. think that's something that Hopkins was trying to accomplish with her work ultimately. 
Yeah, absolutely. So while prepping for this episode, I was doing some reading around Dorothy West and I came across a great article in The Guardian called Whatever Happened to Dorothy West? Uh, by Diana Evans. I just like <laughs> it because it's a question, so I feel like you have to yeah. gotta give it room to breathe. And I did want to share some of it because I do think it speaks a lot to just what we've been saying this season about the expectations that are placed on uh, black women writers. And I also think it feels very relevant to contending forces also. Mm-hmm. So um, the first line that I pulled out was she wrote posh black at a time when broke black was in vogue and this sits at the heart of her flickering obscurity a myopia in mainstream culture that struggled to perceive blackness as anything more than one dimensional yeah yeah that speaks to sarah e farrow it speaks mm-hmm. to charlotte fortin it speaks to yeah everything that we've just said about contending forces that this is not a one-dimensional representation of black people yeah. That you're used to seeing. Yeah. And then it kind of goes on to say, and I think this is something I really related to this as well, just because when I first started working, uh, when I first started making comics anthologies, I got asked a lot, like, or the books were being described as like feminist, and it mm-hmm. just wasn't something that I had ever thought about when I was like 22 like I didn't identify as a feminist it just was not a conversation I'd ever had and then it was kind of like Mm -hmm. put on me afterwards and then Mm -hmm. afterwards I was like oh it is true yeah and then you know and it's just interesting how like people can relate to your work and then like put political Mm -hmm. stuff on it that maybe was never there and so um there's a bit in the article which says like West did not see herself as a political writer. She hated the Black Panthers and the drastic divisive doctrine of pre-Mecca Malcolm X. She did not march or do civil rights, yet her work is deeply concerned with the insidious and warped permeations of race into everyday lives. The wedding set in Martha's Vineyard in the 1950s is about colorism. It's about the profound psychological impasse imposed by the way in which slavery and colonialism pictured black deliverance in the emulation of whiteness, as well as providing important insights into the emergence of the African-American middle class, the waiters and the porters saving their tips and sending their sons to high school, the starting of small businesses, the gradual generational learning of a new style of living involving summer residences and wearing silk, West's work illuminates further subtleties that broaden our understanding of slavery's bitter legacy and the American social strata. I think that what's interesting here is when you look at why both Hopkins and West were sort of pushed out of writing, Mm -hmm. it really isn't like the content of their writing. It's like how they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And it's like both men... Booker T. Washington and Richard Wright want them to be just perfectly on message with their movements. Yeah. It's like, we want you to say this, but we want you to deliver it this way. And we Mm -hmm. want you to go to this march and we want you to co-sign this and co-sign this and co-sign this instead of like being your own person. (laughs) And I think that's, that's the issue here. I think with both of them, that's, that's really interesting to me. Yeah. And not everyone like, not everyone will agree on everything and not everyone like will think Mm -hmm. that like the same way to sort like 
everyone's not going to have the same response to an issue or like the same ideas for solving a problem. And I think the thing that is difficult is that so many, especially the women writers um, and especially the black women writers that we've looked at this season where it's like, your politics don't exactly line up the way that in the 20th, in the 21st century, because that's the century we're in, like mm-hmm. how we would want you to think or behave or you, mm-hmm. like you're too sympathetic to this or you're not angry enough about this or you're not using, like you're not describing yeah. this in this way. And then so it just gets like erased or not talked about because they're not performing right, the way we want them to. And yet, I think what I really loved was just like pulling out like what the work is actually about and it is political. It's intrinsically political because her life is politicized. Her mm-hmm. writing is immediately politicized. So right. then she is a political writer. It doesn't matter if she doesn't see herself as a political writer. Right. And like and that's so interesting. And like I just basically I just really want to read Dorothy West. Yeah, I think that you will really, really enjoy the wedding because I, I think anyone that because i i really associate west with austin in a way oh really so i think the wedding will be an interesting experience for you i'm sorry to go like you know highbrow down to the lowbrow but also the hopkins and west like relationship really makes me think of that meme like this is how we started and this is how it's going mm-hmm. right because Contending Forces is set shortly before and then just after the Civil War and it's exploring the experiences of the children of enslaved people and their children, right? And it's it's talking about the, like in the Guardian article, the waiters and porters saving their tips and sending their sons to high school. That's William mm-hmm. in Contending yeah. Forces. And then so then West is taking it and correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously I haven't read it, but then West is taking it a generation further into that emergence of like the middle class. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of seeing like what William's vision was in contending forces, like what Ma Smith yeah. and Dora and Sappho and all of those characters are like seeing for their children and for the future, you know? And so now that I've read Hopkins, I have to read West. Because it's the natural, it's like the next step. It's like the natural conclusion to the work. It's like the sequel. So maybe it goes Bernie, Austin, (laughs) Gaskell, Hopkins, West. So like I said at the top of the show, this is the final episode of the season and almost the last episode of the year. But we still have our annual book roundup episode coming and we want to hear from you. So we want to hear about all of the amazing books that have eased you through 2020, which has been a hell of a year. And we have posted some threads on our social media. So um, please comment on those. And Hannah, where can the people share their book recommendations? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com and you can find us on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And we hope to see you there. Indeed.